I'm Fearless Fred, comic book creator, radio personality, and dungeon master extraordinaire. On my podcast, Issue Zero, we'll explore all the things that used to get you beat up in school. From Conan the Barbarian to Wonder Woman, we'll look at the history and future of the fandom universe. So join me as we journey through galaxies far, far away. Issue Zero is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can also find us and listen on demand at CuriousCast.ca. Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, January 22nd. We begin with a look at the dramatic increase in applications for addiction treatment at the Dream Centre. We speak with the Centre's Program Director on what's being done to lend a hand to those in need. Next, we get a recap of the Liberal Party's Cabinet Retreat and an update on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's timeline to sign off on the new Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade agreement. We catch up with Global Winnipeg reporter Brittany Greenslade. Earlier this week, City Hall began the process to ban the practice of conversion therapy in Calgary. We hear the story of a man who wrote a book about his experience going through a conversion program. And finally, it's time to celebrate. We get a tour of the Sentry Box, one of the largest game stores in Canada, marking 40 years of history in our city. Calgary Dream Center provides addiction services and programs empowering Calgarians to overcome struggles of homelessness and addiction. And over the past several years, the Dream Center has seen quite an increase in the number of people applying for addictions treatment and now seeing the longest wait times in 17 years. Joining us to talk about why is Chris Skibaris, the program director and mental health clinician at the center. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. So talk to us about, first of all, why is the need at the Dream Center increasing so much? Is it Does it have to do with our economy and just the downturn in this province? Yeah, I think uh, that was a big turning point. Uh, there's a lot of people impacted and just the financial stress, the impact on families, uh, and just that identity uh, kind of crisis and loss. Um, you know, a lot of people were turning to substances as a form of escape. Um, but I also just feel that uh, as a whole, uh, the conversation around addic- addiction and homelessness is starting to increase. Uh, the stigma is starting to decrease. Uh, so a lot more people are reaching out for support. And, uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're experiencing that increase in numbers, absolutely. For those people who don't know what you folks do, I, I would think that part of the reason the wait list is long is it's such a unique facility you do what uh, nobody else really does in town. Can you break it down for us? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, our main building operates out of an old hotel. And, um, yeah, the Calgary Dream Center, we've been around for 17 years. But, uh, yeah, our name is really starting to grow um, in, in the current um, period here. But uh, throughout Calgary, uh, we have 48 properties, and we service 370 individuals, both men and women, um, escaping homelessness and addiction. Um, and our, our mantra is lifelong recovery. We're an abstinence-based program. Um, so we have our initial 49-day program um, that we run out of our main building on McLeod Trail. But then after that, uh, we have transitional housing. So uh, the, the men that go through our program uh, can stay in our, our main building um, from anywhere from a month to a year to really uh, strengthen the foundation of their recovery. And then we also have uh, community um, housing for men and women um, where, you know, you can stay up to five years working with a case manager, having wow. that accountability, having that support system and network that really strengthens uh, the lifelong journey of recovery. And Chris, tell us again, sorry, about the numbers. How many people can you treat in, your, in all of your facilities? 
Yeah, so 370 individuals uh, within Calgary uh, we're supporting at this current time. Um, but like, yeah, you mentioned at the beginning, our wait list um, is at the greatest it's ever been. So uh, we're looking at ways to invest and increase um, our facilities, and we're looking to acquire uh, a new building uh, within 2020 um, that would be able to house and serve an additional 30 individuals. How many people would you say are on the wait list that you're not able to help right now? Uh, so it varies, and it, you know our, our numbers are constantly rotating. But uh, anywhere between twenty to thirty right now mm-hmm. is on our wait list, um, and we try to keep wait lists um, the wait times as low as possible. So if we can get when an individual is wanting support, particularly in addiction, uh, immediacy is so crucial because uh, once we if we miss that window, we may never see that person again. So hopefully between a week or two, um, and our intake team continues to work with those individuals, making sure that they have a safety and a plan um, so that uh, they stay in contact. And when a bed opens and a, a position opens, we're ready to take them in. You say time is of the essence, and if, if it, it takes a week or longer, do you uh, you know uh, kind of funnel them to other uh, local facilities or local resources? Yeah, and we also just provide that ongoing support. So our intake team will uh, communicate with them on a weekly, on a daily basis or a weekly basis. Um, but yeah, when you're dealing with addiction, that moment of clarity um, where you know the individual is ready for change can be so short. So we really want to make sure that uh, yeah we're providing the right information and support. Uh, to, to make it a reality. Chris, we talked earlier about, you know, the, the downturn in the economy, just the difficult time that we're in in this province, in this city yeah. still can be an issue. But are you also seeing then the issue of opioids, fentanyl, the increase of those drugs in our city and what that's doing to people as well? Yeah, definitely. But it's also interesting, right, because uh, that's what you see on the news and the big, uh, you know, the opioid crisis. And, and while there's truth to that, um, there's also research saying that, you know, 92% of overdoses are accidental. And, and part of that means is the opioid wasn't the primary substance of use. It was, uh, you know, a substance like cocaine or methamphetamine that was laced um, with, with opioids in it, which makes uh, this uh, addiction world so dangerous because, Uh, For some, it is a game of Russian roulette. Uh, You don't know what you're putting in your body. And even if you're kind of recreationally using, uh, there are dangerous chemicals that are caught into um, other substances that just uh, make uh, it a scary, scary uh, beast to deal with. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about the success of the Dream Center, 17 years strong. And I, I remember when it was launching, you know, again, almost 20 years back, how uh, you, generally there's a NIMBY attitude when it comes to a facility like yours. Uh, but the Dream Center seems to be, well, smack dab in the middle of the city. It's a big, yeah. bold location, not hidden. Uh, how is it that uh, you folks have managed to to get that kind of acceptance in the community without, uh, you know, uh, uh, causing and stirring up controversy? Yeah, absolutely. And we work with our, uh, the community that we work in, and we have agreements. And um, so we, we want to make sure that it's safe. But what we're finding and what I love about my job when I walk in is addiction doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care about your income, your race, your gender. Um, so, you know, I think, again, that stigma of what homelessness or addiction looks like, it, it's not the picture that you see when you walk around uh, the Calgary Dream Center. It is you know, your successful business people, it is your family people, it's your, your people that go to church. Um, so just understanding that uh, it's, it's the brothers, the fathers, the mothers, the sisters of the world, and, and not kind of this underbelly, underworld type mm-hmm. of 
um, things. So again, it's it's the breakdown of the stigma and the success that we've experienced and just the community uh, outreach and support that we have. Uh, it's it's yeah, our, our mission is to make uh, Calgary a safer and, and better place for, for everyone, right? So it takes a collaboration and, and teamwork to make that happen. Um, but I think everyone's been touched by addiction, whether it's been personally or someone that you know, family member, friend, or colleague. So just understanding that, um, yeah, the, the nature of addiction is changing and, and so is the image of it. Very much so. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Really appreciate your take. Yeah, I appreciate you having us. And uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you to Calgary for continuation of support of the Dream Center. And uh, yeah, keep it coming. With the, you know, the highest need in 17 years, you can donate if you'd like to help them as they try to uh, make room for more people in a bigger facility. CalgaryDreamCenter.com. They've got a donate button right on their homepage. So you can uh, certainly find all the details you need and help out there. Chris Scabaris is the program director and mental health clinician at the Calgary Dream Center. Coming up to 6.10 on the morning news, and it was a three-day event. Kicking off Sunday and wrapping up yesterday, the Liberal Cabinet Retreat. It has come and it has gone. Global Winnipeg reporter and anchor Brittany Greenslade joins us now for a debrief on uh, well, the major points and a look ahead to what the Prime Minister is saying about the big USMCA or C-U-S-M-A, however you slice it. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. How are you both doing? Good. Good. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time this morning. Uh, what, for you, what was the biggest uh, takeaway of the retreat? Um, I think right now, obviously, new NAFTA uh, is going to be the biggest thing moving forward right now. But what we got from so many of the cabinet ministers and from uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was really that they wanted to be working together. Uh, this was going to be a collaboration with other parties, and we know that that is what is going to have to happen if this uh, minority government wants any bills to pass. So they're already laying that out there, saying, you know, we want to work together. Uh, let's, you know, work as one to get some of these important uh, pieces of legislation passed. So starting next week is going to be the first uh, legislation that we start seeing when Parliament starts sitting again. Uh, as early as Monday, the Prime Minister is expected to introduce a Ways and Means motion in the House uh, on Monday. That's to ratify new NAFTA, or depending on you know, where you live, the United States-Canada-Mexico Agreement, mm. or the Canada-United States-Mexico Agreement uh, in anticipation of the House returning. Um, on Wednesday is when we're expected to see that legislation coming to actually ratify that. Now, Canada is the last country involved in that agreement that actually needs to sign off and ratify that deal uh, here. The United States ratified theirs last week. Mexico uh, ratified uh, just before Christmas time. So it is Canada that is just left to do that. And Trudeau really saying that the discussions, he wants to engage and activate, accelerate and move forward, you know, using all those key terms <laughs> uh, when he's speaking to reporters here, reminding everybody that, you know, it is really important, this um, agreement to secure a uh, relationship our trading relationship for future generations. So that is first on the agenda, and Trudeau says that is priority number one, is that security for workers who rely on that trade, specifically with the U.S. and Mexico. So that's what we're going to start seeing next week. That's what's first up. Um, next thing that we're looking at uh, seeing in the coming weeks is Trudeau uh, talking about that ban on assault-style rifles. Uh, he would only say in the near term, promising to deliver new details on the gun control in the coming weeks. 
Uh, we talked to one expert out of Ottawa yesterday saying we're kind of starting with what the U.S. won't do, which is banning assault rifles. What else is going to come out of this gun control um, strategy is yet to be seen. Trudeau stayed pretty tight-lipped on that about what exactly we could see from that. Uh, we do know that it's going to involve $250 million over five years, and that part of that is a buyback program as well as trying to get handguns off the streets. So Bill Blair telling us yesterday he's heading on his way to Victoria. He's going to be meeting with provincial and territorial justice and public safety ministers there and talking about the new legislation, seeing really what they can do to make this work. And they really want to talk with communities to see what they need uh, and talk about the research that they've been doing as well. And Brittany, I know the economy was obviously a key topic and unity as well, because this is the first extended sitting since the election Mm -hmm. reduced the Liberals to a minority. And the Prime Minister really needs to start sort of getting, you know, all provinces in the entire country working together. Yes, and that's something we've seen over the past uh, few months. Um, is that there's been that talk of Western alienation. We know uh, Manitoba and Winnipeg seemed like a key spot for Trudeau to come to hold this retreat. It's kind of where his ministers uh, stopped. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we know that uh, they got basically kicked out of Saskatchewan and Alberta during that election. And Premier um, Brian Pallister here in Manitoba has really kind of thawed when it comes to Trudeau. They had an icy relationship um, prior to the election in the past years. They didn't always see eye to eye, and he's really kind of stepped up as a bridge builder to the West when it comes to uh, the alienation and saying that... um, When we look to the west of Manitoba, we know that the premiers uh, are not seeing eye to eye with Trudeau on a lot of things right now. And and, um, Premier Brian Pallister is actually using that to his advantage because he's been fighting the carbon tax here like some other provinces uh, and saying they want their made in Manitoba plan. And he kind of threw that out there as almost a tit for tat uh, with Trudeau during their meeting here in in Winnipeg saying, you know what, look at our Made in Manitoba plan, offer some flexibility there. We want respect. We want you to show that we're already, you know, doing a lot here in Manitoba as a green province. If you do that, I'm willing to continue building those bridges and helping with those talks with the Western premiers. So that was kind of our interesting takeaway from their meeting on Monday. Any word, I know that uh, anytime you're in a minority government situation, uh, the election writ could be dropped any time, and stats indicate one and a half years to two years uh, would be the longevity of a minority government and has historically in the past. Any word on whether or not the Liberals talked strategy while looking ahead to the next uh, 18 months? I think they're always looking ahead to mm-hmm. the next 18 months. That's something we hear a lot of. There, A lot of that was kept quiet. Uh, these were all closed-door meetings. So we got, um, they kind of picked, picked and chose who which ministers were going to come out and speak and our, our time with each of them was pretty finite but you know that what's happening behind closed doors there's always going to be strategy talk when it comes to that this is a minority government it's a very different position than the liberals were in pre-election so um, strategy is always going to be uh, going on behind closed doors but it is something that we know uh, as Canadians we could be heading back to the to an election mm-hmm. in less than two years. And that's something that I think is very much on everybody's minds. What's on our minds out here in Alberta, particularly uh, pipelines. Was there any talk of TMX and that sort of issue? Yeah, we did hear some of that as well. And we did hear, you know, uh, they are moving forward. That was one of the things we heard as well. Um, and that they're hoping 
um, that this is also going to help thaw some of that Western alienation talk as well. Um, that was one of the big things that we heard from Seamus O'Regan, uh, that they're watching for that. So uh, we did hear about that. It was, uh, we, we got a little bit from Trudeau um, there as well in those talks. And looking ahead, we had the Supreme Court dismissal of that case. So that was one of the big things coming out of that as well. And, you know, they are focusing on that. That is one, one of the other key, um, key projects that um, Trudeau is looking at and making sure that he knows this is a big project uh, for the West. And that's one of the things that they're going to be looking at as well. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning, Brittany. We appreciate it. Thank you. That's Global Winnipeg anchor reporter Brittany Greenslade. Conversion therapy has been described as the practice of trying to change an individual's sexual orientation using psychological or spiritual interventions. Peter Gadgets is the uh, Vancouver-based author of The Inheritance of Shame, a memoir documenting his six-year journey through and eventually out of a form of conversion therapy. He joins us this morning. Hi, Peter. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Now, as you may have heard, Calgary City Council looking to ban this discredited practice. Uh, They were talking maybe potentially fining or removing a company's business license if they're caught. Obviously, this is something very important to you and you're spreading the news about your journey. Can you tell us what happened a little bit about your backstory and how you ended up in conversion therapy? Sure. Um, I'm 55 years old. When I was 25... I was referred to a psychiatrist for counseling. I was estranged from my family. I had actually come out as gay, but uh, they could not accept me for who I was. So I was depressed and isolated, and I went to this psychiatrist for therapy. But this psychiatrist told me that a history of trauma had created my false idea of being gay, and so it would be our job or our work in therapy to... Uh, face the trauma and thereby unlearn my homosexuality and revert to my innate heterosexuality. It sounds very bizarre in today's world, Mm. but I was a trauma survivor when I went to this doctor Mm -hmm. and I trusted him and I went with his uh, advice. And so it lasted six years and it included things like prescription medication, uh, but we're talking uh, four different antidepressants, antipsychotic, um, injections of ketamine, uh, ultimately using aversion therapy when nothing else, quote-unquote, worked. Um, so it was six years, and it left me shell-shocked. And for the first couple of years, I could really not even talk about it. Um, and then eventually I, I sued the doctor, and it's all in my, in my book, the way what, what, how it unfolded. Um, but it was devastating and crippling and reinforced the shame, the self-hatred, uh, set me back years in my, in my self-acceptance and, and that whole journey. Um, and so I've really tried to speak out about these uh, practices. And, and also when I went through it, you know, these terms, conversion therapy, were not used. So the doctor never used that word, those words, and I never used them as well. I think today, in today's world, we have the advantage of of being far more educated Mm -hmm. and we have language around what these treatments are, what they're called. But just also to, it's important to say that uh, nobody who who practices these types of um, uh, treatments uh, refers to them as conversion therapy. 
you know, they're ultimately saying they want to help the LGBT person. Uh, but it's their version of help. Right. Which, of course, does not. So, Peter, this is 25 years ago. You were in the hands of a health care professional. At what point was it not until after or was it during that you uh, realized what was going on? It was only toward the end that I could see uh, as he lowered the medications because the medications themselves were so uh, crippling and I could not think clearly. Uh, but as he decreased the medications for various reasons that I, I detail in the book, I started to understand that nothing had changed, right? Nothing about my sexuality had changed. And I started to get really angry um, about what I'd been doing to myself, about what the doctor had been doing to me. And I laughed. And um, it slowly became clearer as I got free of the medications. Peter, what would your message to Calgary City Council be in, in terms of why it's so crucial and so important to make sure that there's a ban on this practice? Well, I think, first of all, uh, a lot of lawmakers don't realize the, the extent to which these uh, treatments or practices are still occurring because they're, they're innately covert. And, and so it's only now as survivors are talking more and more about them and community leaders are, are advocating that we realize how much this is still occurring. So, uh, you know, educating uh, about uh, the prevalence of these treatments is, first of all, important. Um, banning them is, is crucial. Uh, to uh, to prevent this type of uh, torture, mm-hmm. because that's what it ultimately is. It's, it's torture. Uh, the federal government, of course, has stepped in finally after years of advocating, uh, but we don't know how long that'll take uh, for a criminal code amendment. So meanwhile, municipalities, provinces, they all have a place uh, at this table uh, to speak up against these treatments and to pass their own legislation. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and continuing to push for this ban. Very important for someone who's been through it to, to make sure that their story is told. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thank you. Appreciate it. Peter Guidich has written a memoir. It's called The Inheritance of Shame, and you can pick it up at your local bookstore. 40 years of history, the Sentry Box, and uh, with 40 years comes a lot of changes, uh, but I am amazed that uh, myself and Sue have never been here. Oh, wow, what a different world. Uh, Gord Johansson is the owner of the Sentry Box for 40 years. Let's talk about, did you ever think it would get this big, and how did it start? No, actually, it started just because I wanted cheap games and cheap books <laughs> later on. I just loved games. My goal was initially to retire at 36 and do... Uh, or run a game store, but I did it at 23. Well, I'm a noob to this world, so I'm just I'm amazed at what you've got in here. Explain how this store is set up and what you have for people who maybe just have never been here or don't really know much about gaming. Because I thought it was all about computers when you hear the term gaming. No, no, that is the last thing we actually have in here. There's a small section for retro video games. The board games are the biggest department now. All the uh, things like Settler Catan, and that's just grown and grown and grown. It used to be all guys. Now it's probably half and half women play these ones because you used to be playing Risk Monopoly. Um, you think about how did you have to win? You had to kill everybody else effectively. And I don't know about you, but that end game of Monopoly could get really boring at times. <laughs> uh, the reality is with a lot of games, um, the new style are you're playing and competing, but you're not taking somebody out. Like, nothing was worse than being the poor schmuck in risk who got stuck in Australia for three hours or 
got the boot right away and it's like, well, I'll go home now, right? Yeah. Uh, but these ones, everybody's in until the end. 30 minutes to maybe an hour and a half for most of them. Uh, they're just really good games. We probably get 40 to 70 people on Monday nights playing these things just upstairs on our mezzanine every Monday. Let's talk about that fine balance between keeping the purists who, who like the old school games happy, but also having the newest and latest. That's got to be a real balancing act for you, or do the customers make that choice for you? Generally, they'll make the choice. Like, we have a lot of stuff that my staff, uh, or some of my staff, would prefer I got rid of. But being an old school guy, I'm going to keep. And then, actually, people like that because we're known for being able to, or for carrying stuff that you can't find anywhere else whether it be the science fiction books, because there's probably 7,000 titles in there. Like, we just don't ship books back when they go out of print, because um, it drove me crazy as a, as a reader. You fine-tune it. Like, it's kind of a curated feed. If a game is really crappy, we're not going to keep it in stock after it sells out. But might be crappy for Sue, but not for you. Oh, yeah. Right? Somebody asked me once, why do you have so many games, or why do people buy so many games? And I had to think about it, and then it hit me. It's, it's like a wine collection in a way. Different you know, amount of time you've got to play, different numbers of people maybe playing, the different complexities of it, the different kind of ambiance because they can all be themed differently. Mm -hmm. it just, and it just appeals to different people that way. If people are listening and they've never been to the Sentry Box and they've never played sort of one of these games, so a role-playing game, how, how do you tell people, you know, what you've got here and, and how, why they should come see this place? Because it's huge and it's amazing. We just grow on word of mouth. People say Dungeons & Dragons is fun again. Like, it's, it's really, really surging um, with spreading to the different demographic because they decided that, hey, this great... Uh, uh, half the population was not playing it very much. The rules changed slightly, simplified in some ways, more uh, got away from the crunchy rules, as, as, as the term of super complex stuff. A little simpler, but the game still is the same game. It actually went back to old, more of the old school stuff that we would have started with as far as complexity. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it's, it's a fun time. People get away, they socialize. Uh, they're telling the stories, you know, drinking a glass of wine or whatever, doing it. Everywhere, like I play with my daughters who are 18 and 25 now with a friend and my goddaughter who's now got a four-year-old. She's not quite at the table yet, but she's rolling dice and disrupting things. It's open to every age. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's hard to describe as to why people want to do it. They just, maybe it's escape to a certain degree in a social environment where you're not spending a boatload of money. I mean, the starter set for D&D is $24. It's like nothing. That's why board games are popular, too, because $50, $60, $80, you got three, four people playing it. Um, how many times do they play it? You know, it's, it's a cheap, cheap hobby compared to, say, going skiing or golfing or True. anything like that. Well, of course, we have to give you just one last uh, bit here, which is people can come down and they can play games here. Uh, where do we find information? Because, you know, you guys always have a lot of people here during the evenings. Um, we normally have it listed on our website, which is in the process of being redone. There's a Google calendar that lists stuff. Normally, it's Monday nights is board game night, Wednesdays is Dungeons & Dragons, Tuesdays is miniatures and other things. There's usually stuff going on every night. We even a couple of years ago started a women's game night on uh, Saturday nights because there are people who 
some women don't want to play with the guys because their husbands are obnoxious and when they play and they're super competitive and not to say women aren't competitive but different. it's it's just a different yeah. kind of thing um, and I mean that's not a very big one to be honest but it's been going and it's probably anywhere from 6 to 12 will show up regularly for that but there's always open stuff going on people need to come check it out it's a, a well-kept secret or maybe it's not because you've been here 40 years so happy anniversary Gord Johansson owner of the Century Box I recommend everybody come down and have a look and see what you've been missing or what you've always known about and you know who you might see when you're down at the Century Box Tony King he just came in he said how could you not know about the Century Box He's a big fan of sci-fi books, and they've got an incredible selection of sci-fi books there and whole series of them, not just like discontinued. And they got it done. Yeah. Um, And it's really interesting because uh, we were discussing with Tony in between while the segment was running. 99%, maybe 100% of the items that uh, you can get at the Century Bucks, you can pick up online. However, they thrive, and uh, they because you want to go down there and be tangible. Yeah, and talk and to the people and the, the staff yeah. that know so yeah. much. And the dice, we were talking about dice. It's a, That's a big part of their business at the Century Box. 40 years strong, and he said, yeah, during Christmas, couldn't keep the dice on the shelf. So it is a real testament to customer service, product knowledge, and just the unique product that they have. And I'm going to bring the kids down there as well, because like I say, in a world where we're hearing brick and mortar shutting down, Look to the Sentry Box because it's insane. You got to go check it out. 1835 10th Ave Southwest.